This is the Media Week Industry Podcast from the people at mediaweek.com.au. Welcome to a new Media Week podcast. Dominic Knight, welcome to Media Week. Oh, what a delight to catch up, James. It is. It's fantastic. I've sort of known you on and off for a long time and um, never had a really formal, decent long chat with you. So we're going to test your patience today. Why not do it when the, the mics are recording? That's what I like. That's we, what I love. We will push you to the limits. We, we're here basically to talk about Trumpedia. Right, Trumpedia. Trumpedia, yes. It's, yep. it, there are all kinds of other little words hidden in there that we don't want to explore. But no, Trumpedia, I wrote a book called Strayopedia last year, and this is a, uh, another book in the same format, which is a Wikipedia parody. Why, I can't quite explain, but Wikipedia seemed like the, the preeminent format to present information. It's a great subject to parody, so that's what I've gone with. But I, we'll, we'll cover the book in, in a fair bit of detail, I hope, but I also want to talk Chaser with you. Yeah, great. Because there's lots of stuff. I've never had a, a really good one. To me, you sort of embody the, embody the Chaser, really. You've sort of, you've been there from the beginning. You seem to be behind the scenes at a lot of projects. Yes. And you know where the bodies are buried. I and, do. I was in the room when we launched this this crazy thing. We opened a bottle of champagne in Charles Firth's living room back in uh, Glebe in 1999. So it's been a well, long ride. Yeah. Okay, all right, so we'll cover that off too. But um, look, first about this book, look, at first thought you might think, oh, look, he's just had a quick cash-in on, on Trump to try and make a few a few cheeky dollars. I wish it had been quicker, James, yes. <laughs> well, I know, but as soon as you sit down and start going through this, you start to realise, wow, there's a fair bit of work in this. There's a lot of stories, and the thing is um, Donald Trump has lived enough life for probably five or six people. <laughs> it's really fascinating. And when I started researching... And I, I guess actually even since he descended that escalator and started running for politics, I was on the ABC uh, back in those days quite often and, and we talked about it. I had a, my favourite US politics experts on and we were joking around about this sort of stuff and I started following Trump obsessively and every morning um, I would wake up and see all the latest news overnight from um, what had happened overnight and I discovered a whole lot of things uh, from various websites and other articles about Trump's life, people went back and explored all these chapters of what he'd done in the past as part of preparing for the campaign. So on websites like The Atlantic or New York Magazine or some of these wonderful publications they have in the US, people did these deep dives into what he'd done in his life. And I, for this book, um, had this extraordinary process of just reading article after article about these weird chapters of his life, things like his time with WWE. He's actually a rock and roll wrestling Hall of Fame member, uh, the first president to have that honour, at least until The Rock runs, which I suspect he will at some point. But a really bizarre chapter of his life and um, all these things that he's done and, and uh, waters that he's dipped his toes and other parts of his body into over the years. And so I unearthed a lot of these stories and put them in the book. And I'm discovering that, yeah, readers are really enjoying some of the things we don't know. I mean, it's all very well to write um, chapters on Anthony Scaramucci or Stormy Daniels, which I've done. But some of the other stories from his long and checkered business career, I think really are uh, the main value in some way in, in the book. The subtitle is Alternative Facts About a Real President. And you you have a, a legal disclaimer, which again, I guess is a bit of a joke, but <laughs> it's probably also quite I'm hoping it stands up in court, James. I've got a law degree like some of the chases people <laughs> I actually started doing law. Um, but no, because it's a parody and because, um, uh, you know, we're in this sort of post-fact environment, I've tried to claim there's no such thing as facts anymore. I don't know if the court would take that. But, um, yeah, it's – with Trump, the very notion of reality is contested and there's a – one of the more detailed entries in the book is actually on fake news because I've gone through and looked at the history of that term 
And it's really interesting because you probably remember being such a media scholar that it started out um, these people in in, um, small towns in Eastern Europe putting up fake articles to try and make money. And, for instance, they would write, um, you know, the Pope says vote for Trump, Hillary Clinton is a sinner or something. Or um, there was a claim that Hillary Clinton had once said, Donald Trump's the kind of person we need to run for president. He's unimpeachable. You know, we need business gurus like that in the White House. And of course, this was just made up. But everyone who was pro-Trump shared these stories and they were, they were pro-democratic ones as well. And they just concocted these things because every click that they had made them more money. And Facebook just let them disseminate them. They looked real. The websites were very careful parodies of real US news sites. And these teenagers made a fortune doing this stuff. And then before you know it, Trump's co-opted the term fake news and instead is using it to attack the genuine legitimate media. So it's, it's just what even is reality with Trump and whatever he seems to be able to create reality in his head when he says something. It's for him, it's not the world as it is, but the way he wants the world to be. And so a lot of that is reflected in the book. And I've tried to capture some of the the bizarre leaps of logic that the man makes in his head. And I'm sure it's all real to him. I don't think it's deliberate. I think he just lives in this, in this world that's a bit like ours, but in which Trump is winning in every respect. About Trump in particular, his, has your attitude changed at all over the years toward him? And is there any sort of sneaking admiration for, well, look, for him at all? One of the things that has to be said about Donald Trump is there are two things at least, no, three things that, there are three things that Trump is brilliant at. Uh, the first is property, and I've uh, uh, written in the book about some of the deals that he did. Mar-a-Lago, where he basically bullied the uh, owners of that extraordinary house into selling to him by doing all this tricky stuff with uh, surrounding properties. Trump Tower, where he managed to um, get the airspace above the legendary Tiffany store on Fifth Avenue in, in New York and built that and all this stuff that he did. Um, he really is an, a, a property genius. That That is not unfair to say. And also his golf empire, I look at in the book too. Uh, television, The Apprentice was a brilliant program. I found it really entertaining. I found his bragging and boasting hilarious. And even though it was obvious that Trump water was in no way the best water in the world, that the stakes that he s- sold through the sharper image, that weird chain in the US where you get kind of executive death toys, that they weren't the best stakes in the world. But he was such a showman that that was a fascinating thing to watch. So I enjoyed The Apprentice. I thought it was great. But also his gift for politics is quite an extraordinary thing. His intuition, his ability to, um, I, I guess, understand what a certain sect- a sector of the American electorate wanted, intuitively get their hopes and their fears and um, appeal to that. You have to say his political instinct for that area, which no one was speaking to, those, groups, those people who go to his rallies and love him so dearly and defend him on Twitter 24-7, those people were being ignored by the whole political establishment in the US. And I think his uh, connection with them is an extraordinary thing. And as you know, if, on Twitter, if you write anything negative about him, you get uh, sort of dive-bombed by the Make America Great, hashtag MAGA heads, <laughs> and before you're in big trouble because they'll, they'll call you out. And uh, yeah, so he, he has this amazing political army behind him. So yeah, uh, he definitely is a gifted man in those respects, I think. Yeah. Um and just before I forget, too, you mentioned a, it's a sort of a, a satire on on Wikipedia, yes. in a way. 
how do you treat Wikipedia? Because to me, it, 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 at times it is a useful resource. I love I, it. But I feel a bit bad. I think, oh, I feel a bit grubby if I'm... Well, you want to check but, it. And yeah, so well, yeah, I, but, there was nothing in Wikipedia, from Wikipedia that I kind of use without checking the sources because they're all down the bottom. But when I was hosting the quiz back on my time as an ABC radio presenter, yes. Wikipedia was the greatest resource. <laughs> and I, I don't want to say that we just put things in from the quiz. We didn't. We checked them. But um, you just realise it's an incredible repository. And, um, I mean, studies have shown it's more accurate than Britannica because it's updated so often. And um, as anyone who's used it would know, you can just get in these amazing spirals. You start reading about Trump and before you know it, you're looking at the history of, um, you know, aviation in the US. The Trump shuttle is one of the entries, the bizarre process whereby he took over an airline uh, that was a budget airline doing very well, brought it up market, put put in gold toilets, made them have steak on the flight, and before you know it, um, it's not doing very well anymore. So you just disappear down these rabbit holes. And I thought, well, I've done this with Trump already. I've already read all these weird things about him. Why not put them into a book? Mm. Would there be an international market for this? I'm hoping so, James. I'm uh, Alan Unwin, my publishers, are looking into that. And, um, look, I certainly wrote it with the idea that um, it, it's not Australia-specific. I was going to put in an entry on Malcolm Turnbull and that hilarious phone call that they had, but I felt, no, no, let's just keep it uh, for anyone. And I've given it to a few Americans who have enjoyed it. So fingers crossed it'll – because uh, my previous novels about, you know, life in inner-city Sydney haven't really cracked the international market. So, yeah, why not? You're not the only serious scholar, of course, to be fascinated by Trump. <laughs> there's a there's a few impressive books about. Do you keep up with what's out there? I've read a few. I, I certainly read plenty of Fire and Fury, Michael Wolff's expose. But with that, um, so many people fact checked it, and we're, we're not sure that it was correct. That I didn't really rely on that. But after the after I'd sent the book to the printers. Um, Bob Woodward's book, Fear, came out, and that is extraordinary. Mm. And at, at times I wondered with this book whether I'd gone in too hard or whether things weren't quite as dysfunctional as they seemed. But Woodward's book, which is impeccably sourced, and I think we can completely believe, um, the extent of the dysfunction is just, it's comical. I mean, as a satirist, you can't, uh, you couldn't make up the sheer uh, inexperience and flying by the seat of the pants nature of this White House. It just defies... Uh, defies parody, really. The Trump, a lot of people thought, well, a lot of people thought he'd never make it, and he yeah. did. A lot of people thought he'd get chucked out pretty quick, starting to look unlikely. A lot of people thought he wouldn't be re-electable, but... Mm, he may well. He probably he might. If, especially if there's not an, an alternative. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Look, he's been um, he's been written off since day one, and certainly I didn't think he could do it, but... In hindsight, uh, it's always twenty twenty. He was by far the most interesting of the of the candidates, and in the book, I've got a list of all the people he beat in the Republican primaries, and they were all following politics as usual. They were following the rules. They weren't being outrageous. They weren't being interesting. Uh, they didn't have the charisma that Trump had. They didn't have that entertainer ability that he had. Um, and so, in that sense, you know, I think people didn't realise either that 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 segment I talked about that um, particular. A group of people, predominantly white uh, people from poorer states doing it tough, those people weren't being spoken to either. They were being taken for granted by the Democrats. I think he's going to struggle um, if, as is predicted, the, the Democrats win uh, the House of Representatives back in the midterms. That's going to mean his tax returns come out. They can impeach, start impeaching him if they want to. But more importantly, he won't be able to do it nearly as much as he can now. But Ironically, because he doesn't necessarily believe in a whole lot of his positions, he's quite flexible in some areas. 
bizarrely, they may drag him to the centre more. We might see him um, listening to Jared and Ivanka a bit more and being a bit more Democrat-friendly, as strange as that might seem. He might move to the centre. If he does that, I think he is very much re-electable, but I think he was lucky to win last time because of the way the Electoral College works, and the Democrats surely this time, maybe they'll uh, nominate an, an idiot, but if they don't, I think they'd have a pretty good chance of knocking him off, but who knows? As you say, people have always underestimated him in politics, and he may well to get the full eight years. I'm sure he thinks he will. Donald Trump and the media. Um, a lot of people think he's not too far off and what a lot of things he says about the media, getting him wrong or, you know, I, 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 I don't agree with all that, but I think some of it is not too far off the mark maybe that they maybe they certainly underestimated him, I guess. Yes. But do you think a lot of them still don't quite get it that... But well, people actually do like Trump. And- I, yeah, I mean, look, you certainly uh, – the media in America is as divided as everything else, and this is the weird thing. So you've got a media that's too too much on side with him, and uh, obviously Fox News has often been that, um, and Breitbart and so on, um, his, his big cheerleaders, which Steve Bannon used to run. And then the disdain of the Washington Post and the New York Times and so on, and that they do write these long – think pieces about these groups and why they support him. And they, they certainly report everything that he does. Um, but it's, he says it's unfair. I mean, you're allowed to have a, a political position as a media proprietor. I think what Trump's done in terms of attacking the media, claiming that they're the enemy of the people, uh, you know, in, in his rallies, getting people to boo them and attack them, it's led to a situation now where when a Washington Post journalist has been locked up, when Khashoggi has been potentially killed, um, by the Saudis, when he says, oh, that, that would be outrageous, you can't kill a journalist. I mean, all the journalists are kind of going, well, hang on, since when do you like us? Um, I think that, uh, it, look, a lot of journalists don't respect or like Trump. It's kind of their right. Um, but Does that come through and influence their work? Well, it's the whole thing of fact when versus you- opinion, I, I guess, James. Um, I Look, I'm not a, enough of an expert on US politics to, to look at whether the facts are twisted but it's certainly true that, that the um, journalistic establishment in the US did not see his victory coming. They were all almost all wrong. Uh, I think Michael Moore was one of the only people who actually got it right because he comes from that group of people that Trump won over that I was talking about. So I think the media has to ask itself a lot of tough questions. All the pollsters got it wrong. Uh, the establishment did misunderstand. And look, as in Australia, James, the, the media come from a small social elite group. It's the ordinary Americans generally don't join the media. The media is largely based in Los Angeles in the US and New York. And those people don't go to red states. They call them the flyover states. And so it's not surprising that um, media outlets miss this aspect of the story because they weren't on the ground in those places. The same I'm sure is true here in Australia. I, I don't think you know, how many outlets here can report really insightfully on places like Western Sydney? I'm not sure that they can, or or rural Queensland towns. This happens everywhere. And I guess media, the media really need to be honest about it. And and um, instead of, you know, purporting to be completely objective, acknowledge that they don't have eyes everywhere and they certainly aren't a broad social class. Maybe they should be. I want to talk a little bit about the content that's... Um Get back to the book specifically. Look, there's some. I mean, there's lots of funny stuff in here, but I just want to read a couple of things. There's um, 
I mean, you talk about you talked about how you you quite enjoyed the Celebrity Apprentice. Yes, I mean, you've gone through and you've got a list of the most notable contestants. I think it's a pretty exhaustive list. There can't be many I didn't. I just went through the list, and everyone who I thought I could make a joke about, I put a well, joke in. Well, you basically, did very well. I mean, a lot. Sharon Osborne. Sharon was initially the hot favourite for season three, thanks to her experience with handling older men in the early stages of dementia. I don't think that's unfair. <laughs> Very good. Latoya Jackson, the available Jackson. Poor um, old Latoya. Meatloaf. Trump was always going to invite the man named after his favourite dish. It really is. Meatloaf. Appear on the show. Meatloaf is honestly his, his favourite dish. If you go to, I think, one of the Trump restaurants, um, it has, you know, Trump Mama Trump's meatloaf on the menu. It's, he's a man who, that's what he likes. He likes burgers and steaks. He, in many ways, he is an ordinary American. Who lives in a shiny, shiny golden tower. Look, I won't read all of these, but Lisa Gibbons, whoever she is, she won season seven. Uh, yeah, look, Trump's I final it. season. I ran out. <laughs> like the producers of The Celebrity Apprentice, I ran out of celebrities. And uh, the list of people who were in the, the Schwarzenegger series, like which didn't do so well, I, there's no one in there you've heard of. And the people you've heard of are, are, are completely obscure. No. People you've heard of, are, you wouldn't want to watch on TV. So um, I, don't, I feel sorry for Arnold Schwarzenegger. Both um, that and getting attacked by Trump while he actually made the series. Uh, Arsenio Hall, Hall won season five, a rare instance of an African-American emerging a victor from any process managed by Donald Trump. Poor Arsenio. He's, you know they brought back his show after well, that. I know where you go and you say yeah. after this successful return to television, the Arsenio Hall show was recommissioned, <laughs> then re-cancelled, leading many to think it might have been kinder if he'd remained in involuntary so cruel. retirement. They went, Arsenio, you're back. Here's your talk show. Oh, we're going to take it away again. I love Darcinio Hall. That's a, that's a shame, I think. Yeah. You've even got a little entry on Alec Baldwin. And oh, you've got to put him ha- in Hasn't somewhere. he done well out of uh, Donald he Trump? Very well, he very much has. He even wrote a, a book, um, uh, I think you can't, it's called You Can't Spell America Without Me or something like that, written as Trump. I haven't read it, but um, no, he's had a wonderful time. He keeps coming back on SNL almost every second week. Yeah, yeah, at least. It seems like every week, doesn't it, the, the way those clips are come out and they and they, they push them all around the, the web. Um, tell me a little bit about the process of writing. It's sort of alphabetical with a couple of disclaimers at the front. Yeah, I, I didn't put all the Trumps next to each other because I thought no. that would get a bit dull, But so I put them by first name. But no, I, I essentially just um, uh, wrote the entries in the order that I, I was interested in and eventually just sort of went back and filled so in So did you start with gaps. like a list of all the alphabetical entries you could have and then fill them out or uh, did you write them I'm not one quite as organised as that. I, I had a vague list and then I just kept adding things in and as things occurred to me, I just put them in. And um, uh, for instance, there's an, uh, there's an entry on kleptocracy, which is a government system designed to essentially steal from uh, the people. And that, that was something I just put in just as a whim. It's sort of a political science joke because that's what I studied at university. Um, so, you know, um, Philippines under Marcos, for instance, was a kleptocracy. And um, it seems as though the US is going that way as well. KFC fits in as well, of course. It's a very important part of... Uh, well, let, me, a, let me read this. KFC, Donald Trump's southern strategy for is it assuaging his presidential hunger. That's the one. KFC has much in common with the president himself. Yellowy orange, oily to the touch, and not interested in cutting down on fat. Well, there's a very famous photo, which I wanted to put in the book, but we weren't able to, um, of Trump on the plane uh, with a a huge bucket of KFC in front of him and a knife and fork. And it was sort of a bit like um, when uh, Malcolm Turnbull was trying to uh, trying to eat with a knife and fork. These people don't quite know how to pose for these photos. But, I mean, Trump with a massive bucket of fried chicken in front of him, I think we were seeing the real man there, for sure. How did Australia ever 
And did it escape a Trump investment or a... It's actually a very good question. Um, yeah, Trump never quite managed to make it here. And I think the fact is that most Trump overseas investments are done by local partners wanting to license his name. I don't think he ever puts his money at risk. Um, there was talk of him investing at Barangaroo, and it wouldn't have surprised me if there'd been talk of a Trump casino at Barangaroo, actually, at one point. But yeah, I guess the deal didn't get done, and uh, James Packer swept in and, of course, put his actual money in, which Trump almost never does. <laughs> And even the question of how much Trump is really worth is just so unanswerable. He, he, in many ways, he's still a mystery, even though he's in the papers every day. There's still a lot we've got to learn about him. And, hey, maybe if the Democrats do win, we'll eventually get to see those tax returns. Yeah, I guess the Gold Coast has got Trump written all over it. But, but maybe yes. it's, a, it's a bit of a wake-up that Australia is actually not that big a deal on the world stage. Well, he, look, he has a... He, he, wasn't allowed to start new um, overseas projects once he became president. But um, in the book I've listed, he's got a lot of dodgy business partners overseas in places like, I think, Kazakhstan, um, Uzbekistan, all kinds of countries, the Philippines, um, where a lot of his partners have been investigated for corruption and there's all sorts of questions being asked. The Gold Coast would have fitted seamlessly onto that list, James, I think. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. What sort of time scale did you take to start and finish the book? What? Well, one of the last entries that I wrote, ironically, was the one about Trump himself. I kind of realised, hang on, I haven't actually got an entry on Donald J. Trump. So I went back and looked at his biography. So uh, there's some stuff about his early years. Um, there was an extraordinary moment where he got in trouble with his dad for travelling into Manhattan because um, they lived in Queens at the time. And he, he caught the train into Manhattan and bought a knife, I think because he was worried about getting mugged. Um, and his father found out and flipped and uh, sent him to military school. So suddenly Trump, from having this very privileged um, upbringing of limos and all this kind of stuff, got shipped off to a strict military school where at one point he managed to install a solarium in his room just by buying an infrared light to get his suntan. So um, all these early formative um, experiences seem to, to some degree, explain the man that he became. So I, I wanted to look at that. So it sort, of, it sort of starts where he begins, and I look at some of his ancestors as well. Mm. And physically, how long did you spend on it, you reckon? Oh, I spent maybe three or four months writing it. Um, okay. And bizarrely, I just had a child. So uh, my in-laws came and stayed with us and helped look after the, the child. So I'm very grateful for them. The book would not exist without without my mother's, uh, without my wife's parents coming and uh, helping mining the baby. Thank you very much. Are you a deadline guy or do you structure it so you make sure you do a certain amount a day? Or? Everyone in the chase is last minute. It's one of the beautiful <laughs> things about working with those guys is, you know, I, we are not forward, uh, forward planners. And I guess it's one of the reasons why it's good doing things about what topical wants in the news because if you're a last minute person, it means you can, uh, you can deal with the news at the latest possible moment, I guess. Um, Ellen and Unwin's a fair dinkum publisher. Australiapedia, did they publish that? They did. Too? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's been wonderful working with them. They're, yeah. uh, they're amazing people. They, they really just back the idea. If they like what you're doing, they'll publish it. And um, I, I, I've dealt with Random House. I published my novels with Random House and they were terrific as well. But Ellen and Unwin, I think as an Australia uh, first publisher, they're really based here and they just are such a wonderful stable of, of good writers. Any legal things they were concerned about that you had to sort of... No, because it's it's parody, it's satire. There are a lot of exemptions. And I think if it got yeah, published in the States, there'd the be the First buddy. Amendment. No, I think, um, yeah, I, I don't think... When you read the book, it's hard to know what's factual and what isn't. And, and I think... I'm hoping that's a legal strategy that will protect me if Donald Trump ever sues me. But look, if, if, he, if he were to, what a wonderful bit of publicity for the book. Hmm. 
Because yeah, when you say satire, but one of the things that struck me when you're flicking through it, you go, well, this, this is actually quite a serious and detailed entry. There's a lot it's, of research. Yeah. It's definitely true. It's I, not I all did just a lot of, laugh, is it? I did a lot of reading. Well, because often the story is just interesting. I mean, many of the business ventures that he was part of, things like Trump Mortgage, he set up the business um, being a mortgage broker just before the massive collapse of the financial, uh, the collapse of the housing market in the GFC. Um, the Trump Network, which is one of my favourite entries in the book, this very dodgy healthcare business that he set up where people um, were prescribed vitamins based on a urine test, would you believe? Yes, I'm not making that up. There was literally a Trump-branded urine test at one point. Draw your own conclusions. <laughs> um, all that stuff, you just tell the story. You don't need jokes for that. But at other times, like, yeah, I did put in some jokes. There's seen a few parallels between... Trump and maybe Richard Branson. I mean, you'd say with less ego, but then again, you look at Branson, you think, well... Yeah, he's not he's, sort of ego. No. Yeah, well, you could argue that uh, Branson's the lefty Trump, um, but he's never had the chutzpah to run for office, at least. Lefty, though, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, but similarly, the idea of a brand that you can put on a whole bunch of different products and services, that is a fairly revolutionary idea in business. I mean, the idea that Virgin could have an airline and trains and credit cards and all this sort of stuff, it is very similar to the Trump brand. Uh, and look, I, I think if the Chaser had been more successful, we could have put the Chaser brand on well, all Well, I was going things. to say, I mean, it's almost a good segue to start talking about the Chaser because you guys have branded a fair bit of stuff. We have, yeah. There's a, and there's all these, we have all these funny guidelines about how we use the brands. So it's not completely destroyed. But yeah, it's a funny, it's a funny business in that uh, it's something that uh, I guess a lot of people still know about. Um, there was a time when it was, uh, you know, very much talked about during APEC and all that kind of stuff. But the main thing when people hear about the chaser these days, the main reaction is, oh, are you still there? Are you still going? <laughs> so you might need to work. We should probably talk to Triple M Publicity about that. Okay. All right, we'll, we'll talk a bit about Chaser. But look, Trumpedia, uh, Alan and I'm, when it's out now, you can um, – I think the book's the best way to look at it, but there is a digital – you can get a digital e-book, can't you? Yeah, there's an e-book, absolutely. Uh, that, for that and Australiapedia, they're sort of a matched pair. They've got a similar design. So, yeah, if you can find it at a, book, at a bookshop, what a great Christmas present for the Trump fan yep, out there, or the, rather the Trump detractor out there. Good stuff. Now, the chase. Now, you said before it was uh, about 1999. It was, yeah. It's nearly 20 years. It's extraordinary. Right. That we okay. still talk to each other at all after yeah. all this time. Yeah. Now, you, we're recording this at, uh, with Podcast One, who share a building with um, Triple M. Yes. Now, you had a very early media gig with Triple M. Well, it? our first paid job, which I think was in 2001, was a show called The Sunday Chaser, which was um, the prestigious time of, Sid, of <laughs> Sunday night, 9 till 12, uh, eight, well, 9 p.m. to 12 a.m. On, on Triple M Sydney. And that was just fantastic. They were so nice to us. They just let us do whatever we wanted. We made sketches. We mucked around. We tried characters. I'm sure if we went back and listened to it now, it would sound pretty terrible. But they were really kind to us. They gave us a really um, experienced producer guy called Byron Webb, who's uh, on Smooth these days, I think, doing Drive. Doing doing very well, yep. And he's a a terrific guy. And so we really learnt the ropes and they put a lot of time into air-checking us and training us up. Uh, Also a guy called Brett Nossiter, who oh, yeah, is nice, now at right? uh, yeah, iHeartRadio. Radio. He fa- was a fantastic supporter of ours. So we got to meet all these wonderful people. And now Lee Coolman, who's a very experienced radio guy, he produces our show at Triple M now. So we've had this long relationship. It's been our longest me- uh, media relationship has been with uh, Austereo and SCA as it is now. And uh, But this is the first year that we've ever done a full-time job. We've done a daily show um, with them for the whole of this year. And that's been... 
uh, you know, we kind of kept flirting and there were offers and there was at times we went to them going, hey, have you got a job? And they didn't. And so it's, it's taken a very long time for us to get together, but it's, it's a lovely thing now that we have. Is the, I mean, if you look at the chase and I want to talk about your website in a minute because there's a, I, I, I don't go there a lot to be honest, but I was surprised by the amount of content and funny stuff that sits there. But yeah. The, but there's also a very, there's a meet the team page, which is <laughs> very instructive and comic in itself. But is there a chaser sort of back end that people actually do work or well, look, an office, the- say? Well, there is a, of a sort, but the the Chaser text business at the moment is really run by Charles. The, the So the Chaser Quarterly, which he still puts out, which I occasionally contribute to, but I'm not a huge part of. So this it. is a print yeah, magazine. So it's like a print it. magazine that comes out, and the latest version is the Chaser Annual. So we've brought okay. back the book that we used to do, which that's I used to That's been going for quite a while, the Chaser Annual. Well, it went away and it's come back. Okay. So that's full of um, satirical kind of news articles about the year. But Charles and his team, he's got a team of young writers who do fantastic stuff. And so, yeah, I often look at the website and, and I'm just delighted by what they've come up with. And I keep meaning to contribute more to it and being busy. But um, it, it really was the meat and potatoes of our business for so many years, writing news parody. And it's it's really good fun. And um, I'm glad that we're back in that game. And it's one of those things where we'd love to invest more in it and spend more time on it. And um, because when we started out, we spent all these years trying to do new satire, new satire in this country and it just didn't work. We couldn't get ad sales for obvious reasons. We were too um, irreverent and, and disreputable. Uh, but what the Batuta team have done now is quite extraordinary. They seem to have built a working business doing the same sort of stuff that we did, but with the brilliant addition in their case of the notion that it's part from a tiny Queensland town, so it's the voice of the bush. But, yeah, I mean, I just love news headlines as a, as a format um, – we all loved The Onion reading that and so on. So I'm glad that The Chaser still publishes this stuff. I'm glad that um, it's it's still out there. And um, one of these days we'll really have to try and build it up as a business. But for the time being, it's um, it's done on the smell of an oily rag, really, to be honest. So the the originals were you, uh, you Charles Firth, Craig Rucastle, and Julian Morrow. Is that correct? Yeah, we were the first editors and, and the founders of the okay, company. Okay, then you later picked up Andrew, uh, Chaz, and Chris Taylor. That's right. Yep. Yeah. So, yep. I mean, there have been other people who have been part of it along the way too. Richard Cook, who now writes for The Monthly, was a very big part of the newspaper as well. But I guess that's been the core creative team that's been in most of our projects over the years. Yeah, that's seven. Okay. The Chaser on television is probably the – the, the way most people have caught up with the brand, I guess. Mm. Um, tell us about your first TV gig. So, well, that was um, it was very early. So we started doing that show at Triple M in, in 2001 and Andrew Denton just happened to be um, preparing to step down from his breakfast show that he did on Triple M. It was a wonderful show. And he um, wanted to get into TV. For some reason, he came across our newspaper and, and took us out to lunch and it was the most exciting conversation we'd ever had. Just before he said, um, would, you, would you like to do TV? And that we were kind of walking on air. Um, and we came up with the idea of an election show in 2001. Um, that was the, uh, you know, the post 9-11 election, the Tampa election, one of the most controversial in our history. And Andrew, um, you know, offered to produce our show. He got it up at the ABC for us and really taught us his approach to making comedy, um, which was a wonderful thing. I mean, he just cracked us up. And he seemed to like working with us. And um, it was a beautiful creative partnership. And uh, we really have him to thank for the transition to actually being, being able to do this as a job. Because up to that point, we were just all doing it as a hobby. No one could actually afford to live on comedy until Denton got involved and people started taking us more seriously as a, a team of 
writers and then later performers. So what was the first series? It was called The Election Chaser. Oh, that was The Election Chaser. Yeah, so it was just four episodes on the ABC back right. in 2001. And um, there was a by-election, that, so we made we did a pilot. It was called, the, 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 a bit like Wentworth, actually. It was just a bit before the election, the Aston by-election. So we all went down to Melbourne and filmed all these stunts with John Howard and all this kind of stuff and discovered that in Australia you can walk up to the Prime Minister with a camera crew. <laughs> and that was really the, the uh, foundation of our career for many years. Yeah. 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 To me, I mean, Australia has a bit of a history of people doing satire, and but it's a, it's a space that hasn't been filled a lot lately. Is yeah, it's funny. It's, is it, that because, is that partly the media's fault they don't commission it or do people think it's too hard to earn a well, living we, out of it? Or? We kind of got out of it. Uh, all the stunts and all that sort of stuff, which is what we, we enjoyed most and I think people enjoyed most about us. The stunts got hard because the team got known. And so what happened was once upon a time you'd be able to go up to um, a Liberal backbencher and say, have you, have you heard Alan Cadman, who was an obscure MP, he was the most unlikely person possible, Alan Cadman is challenging John Howard. And MPs would go, really? No one's, no one's told me. Look, I think Alan's a wonderful man. He's very good. I also admire John Howard. And clearly then they're trying to hedge their bets in case Cad- Cadman has the numbers and then they go and ring their staff. Whereas then it became, oh, ha, ha, hi, Craig. Ha, ha, how are you going? It's the chaser. <laughs> And that that wasn't funny anymore because they they just didn't they didn't treat us as being real. And so when when they thought, oh, it's some, it's a guy in a suit, it, this must be real. That's when it was funny. That's when it could be edgy and surprising. And before long, you know, we had some funny offers, but it was just always, oh, the chaser are here again. Yeah, they're always here. Oh, they're here on John Howard's walk again this morning. What are you doing today? Oh, you're dressing up as sheep. Okay, <laughs> do you do that? Dress up as sheep. and the the um, federal police got to know us. And so I think nowadays, because of the fears of terrorism, security is tighter. Um, people coming up and doing unknown things, there's more of a chance you'd get shot. Mm. But plus everyone has smartphones now, now, James. So if you went and filmed a stunt, everyone would record it and share it on YouTube within an hour. Um, all the newspapers would have it. And back in the day, they'd report on what we did, and that was great publicity for us. But they wouldn't have the stunt. They wouldn't have the footage. But now they would. So, uh, you know, uh, it's harder to do. But that said, maybe we'll come back and do some more. And I love the idea of drones recording stunts. What, wouldn't that be fun? I, and I hidden, love hidden cameras and stuff. Media. You can't, there's no such thing as a bad drone shot, is there? It would be fantastic. So <laughs> I, I just can imagine, you know, the John Howard walk interceptions that we did with a drone recording it all in the sky. Mm. It'd probably get shot down, but that's all right. You get insurance for that sort of thing. So, yeah, look, I don't know why um, subsequent groups of comedians haven't tried to do the sort of stuff that we did I, I really can't understand why they didn't take off. Maybe they don't like us. Maybe we're unfashionable. But um, it's a great it's a great form. I mean, some of the stuff in the States with Michael Moore doing all of his stunts, I just love it. I love that confrontation and I'm sad that there's not, that, uh, that there's not more of it around these days. I hesitate to ask because I think you guys almost get sick of talking about it, but the George Bush um, incident... Up here, up here in Sydney, and um, that was sort of to me, or sort of a, your peaks, your pranks at their peak. Yeah, well, it was, was in every sense. I mean, that was so just too- talk us back through that for people who, who can't remember. That so, this was APEC in 2008, and look, I think, um, and bearing in mind, Charles just did another prank in that area where he projected Alan Jones's phone number on the Opera House, but that I, I think where the chaser were, were at their best and certainly at their most popular was when the whole city or the whole country was annoyed about something. And um, back then during APEC, people might not remember, but 
there was a huge security presence. And if you lived in Sydney, they'd carved the city in two. There were security barriers up everywhere. The cops were being very heavy-handed. And it felt like suddenly we were living in some sort of weird police state. Um, and so that prank came at a time when people really enjoyed it when the chaser were kind of, in a sense, without wanting to be too sort of up ourselves, it felt a little bit like we were kind of representing the city. So the concerns of the city, if the city was annoyed about something, and this, you saw that again with the Opera House, if the city is, or a big part of it is annoyed about a thing and you go and do a stunt which at the actual place, which points out that the thing is not very good or is annoying or whatever, people are behind you in a way, particularly if you take on an authority figure like, I guess, the president or John Howard or, or Alan Jones, people enjoy that if you take on a big target and are brave about it. And so the apex stunt where we um, brought a motorcade down Macquarie Street up to the barrier, the joke was always going to be that Osama so Bin So this Laden, is you had your own motorcade? We had our own motorcade. How many vehicles? The ABC paid for a motorcade with uh, motorbikes and, and a stretch limo, which is very kind of them. Okay. We had big budgets in those days. And we put Canadian flags on the, uh, uh, on the cars because we thought, Everyone loves Canadians. They'll just wave us through. And they did, hilariously. The joke was going to be it got up to the barrier. They said, you can't go through. And Osama bin Laden, Chaz, would, would get out and say, oh, I'm a world leader. Let me in. I'm supposed to be there. I'm part of APEC. And so that was going to be the punchline because you always need a punchline when you shut down. But then, then they didn't shut us down. So we of our own volition turned the uh, motorcade around because Julian, who was in charge of things and sort of calling the shots dressed as a security guard, he went, whoa, okay, we're definitely into the bit where you're not allowed to be by law and turned the whole thing around. And then they realised it was us and it kind of went from there. But it became a an amazing global phenomenon. It was on, you know, on the news everywhere and papers everywhere. And it's all thanks to the incredibly boring APEC meeting that happened. The only other thing that they discussed was I think George Bush called it OPEC by mistake, <laughs> that and us. And so the world's genos were there. The world's genos were hoping for something to report and we gave them something to report. So, yeah, we'll never get ratings like that again. I think we got 2.3 million oh, for the episode you, on the ABC after that and yeah. you know, we'll, we'll never get near that again. And I think it was the top rating uh, figure for an ABC comedy show ever. It may have been surpassed since then, but... Um, it did feel like for that one moment, you know, the nation was on our side and then pretty soon after that they weren't again. But uh, it was a nice thing. It was probably the highlight of our career, probably always will be the highlight of our careers. You've done your, your best work and all, most of your work with the ABC. You had a bit of a love-hate relationship with Seven. Well, look, Seven is an interesting one because, yeah, some of the guys, I wasn't involved in it, but some of the guys did a show called The Unbelievable Truth at Seven, which was an adaptation of... Uh, Graham Garden format, actually, that started life in, on radio in the US. And Andrew Hansen's a massive goodies fan who tends to interview them when they come down under. So that was his great brainchild, and that happened over at Seven. But then also during the making of The War and Everything, we did a segment called What Have We Learned From Current Affairs This Week? And Chaz and Andrew parodied, and, and Chaz watched every minute of uh, ACA and Today Tonight, which is the old show on, on Seven, and basically called them out every week for all the terrible journalism that they did. And it was it was actually coming from quite a serious place for us. We didn't used to do anything re requiring analysis or consideration. And um, Chaz's project then turned into a whole series called The Hamster Wheel, looking at media more closely. But, yeah, it was weird. At one point, um, Channel 7 actually kind of detained Chaz and Andrew in their, in their Martin Place headquarters and tried to, to get them arrested and all this kind of stuff and then filmed the whole thing and tried to catch out Chaz and Andrew and didn't quite manage to do that. But, um, 
it was quite a battle. And then, yeah, we signed on. I, don't, I wasn't part of that decision, but, you know, good on Seven for looking for looking past that. Yeah, I mean, the to, for my reading of it, the actual guys working on Today Tonight in Seven's case were sort of almost saw it as a bit of a badge of honour that you cared enough about their stuff to Well, some of them were very angry it. about it. Poor old Anna Corrin, who was the host in those days, we made fun of her because every... She did these torturous segues from one story to another, and it was often a hundred words to try and logically link two things. Where she she could have just said, "Okay, now let's talk about whatever," rather than linking the two. Um, I actually bumped into her in Hong Kong, Kong the other day. She's a CNN journalist. Yeah. She didn't know I was there, but I saw her across the room. So she's had a great career since today tonight. When once she went back to working in proper journalism. But yeah, look, some of them thought we were funny and enjoyed it. Um, Anna Corrin certainly was very friendly to us. Uh, ACA loved it when we made fun of today tonight, and they were very supportive. <laughs> they gave us tip offs, if I recall. Um, but it's it's weird. I mean, it's, it, it's always like this with the media, with with comedians, because people can either play along or they can be annoyed about it. And if you get annoyed with a comedian, you generally look like an idiot. So mm. playing along is always the best strategy. I mean, your ratings have always been good on TV. Did that ever make you a hot property? Did you have many discussions with other networks that? didn't ever come to anything. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, I can probably talk about this now because it's so many years ago and we're no longer the property that we were. But um, before we ever signed with the ABC, actually Channel 9 were the first people to approach us. We went and had lunch in their boardroom, which is a wonderful experience. And we thought, look, there's no way. We'll we'll get sacked by them within a week or two, so let's not do that. Um, And then when Denton got involved, that was the thing that made us feel we could actually possibly make TV without stuffing it up. Um, but yeah, look, when the war was, was, um, writing really well, we certainly had chats with, I know, nine under Eddie McGuire, there was interest and, and other networks as well. But back in the day, uh, I guess the thought was how could we possibly do this show at those networks? You know, we, we picked on advertisers. We were going to McDonald's every week or two, the number of, um, war and everything. We actually, the ABC said to us, please stop filming in McDonald's. You're doing it itself and it's it's actually promoting McDonald's, <laughs> which we didn't agree with. But, um, yeah, so th- that show could only have existed at the ABC because they were very supportive of the stunts that we were doing. It was, there were no commercial considerations. Whereas working now in commercial radio, it's, your, it's the other way around. You can say whatever you like about politics. It doesn't matter if you're one-sided at all, which at the ABC, of course, it does. But, yeah, you want to be very careful about the sponsors. And that's fair enough. They're the ones who pay our wages. So... Um, I think a chase at commercial TV show, were one ever to exist, would have to have a whole other range of considerations. Maybe it will happen. Watch this space. But, um, you know, it's it's just you need to be big enough. And this is true of the whole of the media. You need to be big enough that you can set the terms a bit and have creative control. And I, I think the great thing was when, when we weren't big enough, Denton took that on for us. He had the creative control on our behalf. And since then, we were always able to call the shots and have final uh, cut on what was funny and what wasn't. And if that ever changed, I think we we wouldn't want to make that show. Um, And that's where a comedy on commercial TV often doesn't work because often the creatives don't get final cut. Triple M have been very good with that. Uh, They're very supportive of us making comedy calls. And uh, that's really the key, I think, to anyone anyone doing comedy is you need to get the choice. Okay, if something has a legal problem or a commercial problem, that's fine. But... The people who get who get to decide whether it's funny and it's in the show, that should always be the creatives, and that's the key. When Andrew Denton exited, he sort of um, uh, CJZ 
um, business. Nick Murray sort of took over and he's had a pretty good relationship with you guys, I think, too, hasn't he? Yeah, look, Nick Murray was someone who we met with um, a very long time ago. And I remember in the early days, we had a meeting with Nick Murray at, at Jigsaw before we ever worked with Denton. And he was talking about trying to get us on for a new satirical program. And I think it was Will Anderson. We were sitting down in a room and, and Will was saying, you know, I really want this show to be funny or smart, not like those people who just like held a roast chicken up in front of Kim Beasley recently. <laughs> and we were like, oh, that was us. And that project didn't go anywhere. But Will we love and, and have had a good relationship with for many years. But yeah, look, Jigsaw have had a, a great record and now CJZ, they're a great place to make comedy. Uh, Charles worked with them very recently on the, the pilot for Sam Dastiari's show. And uh, Nick Murray, of course, was very involved in the checkout, which I wasn't part of, but was a big part of our company, Giant Dwarf, um, for many, many years. And we're still kind of quite sad that it got uh, axed when it did by the ABC. So, yeah, look, um, certainly the commercial uh, producer sector has been good to us. We started out with Cracker Jack, actually, our first productions with Denton. And our own uh, production um, arm, Giant Dwarf, I think has done some wonderful things under Julian Morrow, things like The Letdown, which I haven't been part of, but I've been very proud to, I guess, have a, a, something of a share of because I'm part of the company. Is Chase a part of Giant Dwarf? Or oh, look, this separate? is all very complicated. The, the, the Chaser company is the old <laughs> newspaper company, so right, okay. it was owned by the people who were there at that time. So yeah. the people, some of the our shareholders were, <laughs> you know, cartoonists who used to work on the newspaper, and we gave them shares in lieu of, um, in lieu of pay back in the day. But Giant Dwarf right. was the production company we set up with the people from the war and everything. So okay. uh, Charles isn't a part of Giant Dwarf. So there's sort of these two entities, but then the team from the from the war and everything don't work together very much anymore. So um, we the, the commercial arrangements are always complicated, but. The main thing is who's the creative team on any project, and that's they're the ones who call the shots. We always work like that. All righty, good. Well, look, let, we better wrap this up now. Look, um, I just want to talk quickly about your own media career because you did uh, ABC Evenings for quite a long time, didn't I you? I did. I was there for four and a half years of doing evenings before I um, decided I needed to so actually see the woman of, who I would end up marrying. And You ran out of quiz questions. <laughs> that's, no, I never ran out of quiz. <laughs> I won't have that, James. That was so much fun. Um, yeah, and then I stayed around and I filled in a lot. I did about a month of breakfast. I did nightlife when Tony Delroy stepped down. It was a wonderful place to do radio and, um, I mean, it's so... Um, badly resourced the ABC. I, I was doing 15 hours of radio for an audience of I think 200,000 people every week with one producer and me and just doing it all ourselves. Mm. But what an amazing place to learn radio. And uh, look, I really miss the ABC in many ways. It's um, You have such freedom in, in what you do. You just talk to people who you think are interesting. Um, and I really admire what they do. All the talk about you know, ABC bias and all this sort of stuff. And people focus on a very small part of the organisation. But I worked with hundreds and hundreds of very dedicated radio people who were just loved by their communities and have that really strong, strong bond. And there's nothing like it. You know, when I used to broadcast and someone would be on the back of a tractor doing some ploughing and have the radio hanging off the, uh, the side of the tractor, you were their companion. And it was a very personal relationship. And look, I loved it. I loved every minute of it. Yeah. All right, fantastic stuff. Can we see, would you get up to anything else by yourself again? Is there anything you'd want to do? Or? Look, who knows with radio? I've really enjoyed coming back in, in the family reunion of Radio Chaser that we're doing. In, so um, you're on air daily, Triple M Sydney. Yes, but three till four. Yeah, three till four. But then there's a weekend national program. Yeah, there's on. the Platinum Edition that's on um, everywhere around the Triple M network pretty much or via podcast. We're also doing a podcast with Podcast One called Cat's Pajamas with the Chaser, which is 
going back through historical episodes like um, all the times that the CIA tried to kill Fidel Castro <laughs> and we work out whether those techniques were cat's pyjamas or cat's piss. So there's a chaser reunion going on here at SCA, uh, which I guess we're doing an hour a day. People have got other projects on, but it's a great way to finally come back and learn the art of, of commercial radio comedy, which is its own beast. Uh, you know, shows like Martin Malloy. We all grew up on Doug Mulray in Sydney. All the voices and the sketches, and we're bringing we're a bit retro, really. Um, but no one else does these sort of elaborate sketches that we make day in day out. And I've got to go now and actually write one and then edit it up and perform it. But being able to have an idea, get it cut up by an audio genius, and then putting it on on air an hour later, that is a wonderful thing to be a part of. So, and you can only do that in commercial radio. The ABC, sadly never had the resources to make this kind of comedy. So no wonder so many great comedians have gone through and just relish working in commercial radio. Yeah. All right. Fantastic stuff. Look, uh, the book, Trump, I get this wrong, Trumpedia. Trumpedia. Ellen and Um, when it's out now, uh, The Chaser, check out thechaser.com.au, some hilarious stuff there. They've got the radio show on uh, Triple M and it, the giant dwarf even got a theatre, haven't there's they? There's a theatre. Yeah, we have a theatre. Um, there. There's stuff on most nights of the week there. I'm doing a show there. I think the 6th of November, actually, just before the midterms, um, okay. talking about some of the things I discovered in, in Trumpedia. So um, it is an empire. It's certainly true. We're across a bunch of media, um, which is just a great position to be in after nearly, nearly 20 years. I can't believe we're still going. Yeah. Okay. Look, I can't recommend this book highly enough. It is very funny. It's good stuff. Um, Dom Knight, thank you. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Cheers, James.